What a joy and delight it is to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Psalm chapter 13 as you're making your way to Psalm 13. Um, it's just good for me to be here. I'm deeply encouraged and uh, love Pastor Ethan. I was telling him two weeks ago when I worshiped with you all, uh, we, we're doing a bit of vacation down the, down the street from you here on Oak Island, and I've kind of been hanging out there uh, and then worshiped with you all a couple of weeks ago. I would have been here last week, but uh, was in Atlanta celebrating uh, my best friend's uh, 50th birthday uh, party. So we had great times, Cupid shuffling and all that wonderful stuff. Uh, but one of the things I was telling Pastor Ethan that I really deeply appreciate about him is his sensitivity to the spirit. Um, and just him both kind of having planning center, uh, but also making room for the spirit of God to move. Um, and what a gift that is. And I told him, uh, we got to figure out a way to leverage that uh, and to really get him to pour into more of our pastors and our Summit Collaborative uh, to just have a high sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. So deeply appreciative to him, his beloved bride, uh, Ashley. Good to see Pastor Chris and look forward to meeting his, his son and so many others uh, of you. Well, normally when I go to speak places as a guest, I, you know, I always ask, how long do I have? I forgot to do that here, um, especially being a chocolate preacher. Right? And so uh, I remember being at a Presbyterian church in Charlotte some years ago and um, saying to the senior pastor of this Presbyterian church, Brother, how, how long do I have? And he says to me, Oh, brother, um, time means nothing here. We are a spirit filled, spirit led church. You let the spirit use you, but the people leave at 12. <laughs> so. Yeah, you're like, this is the first service. We leave way before 12. So <laughs> Psalm 13, the guy who wrote this, his name is David. Pick me up in verse 1. I just want to continue um, what I heard from Pastor Ethan two weeks ago when he was in James chapter 1. I want to continue that thought. David writes, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Make note of this phrase. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your one Hebrew word translated as two English words. It's the most important Hebrew word in all of the Old Testament. Steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. We have worshipped you. We have ascribed your, your worth. We have talked to you. We have affirmed rich, vast truths of who you are. But we dare not leave your presence in a monologue, us just simply talking to you. We need a dialogue. We need you to talk to us. These people don't need to hear the thoughts of a middle-aged man. They need to hear from an eternal God. 
And so, Lord God, I just stand in my body, as the old African-American preachers used to say, think with my mind, speak with my mouth, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. I, I, I pray that Jesus Christ is clear, that his gospel is clear. Hide me behind the cross. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So I'm a, I'm a part of a, of a group of pastors. We get away for an annual retreat, and this last retreat, um, um, we just had a ball. I, I was so looking forward to it, and I'm also sad because it's the last time we could meet at that specific place because a guy by the name of Brad Pitt just bought it. Um, <laughs> it was a, he bought it from a Christian family who gave it to us for free. Anyways, don't even get me started on that. So... Um, <laughs> So I was excited to get there, not just because it's a wonderful place, but also because um, the the guy leading us at this pastor's retreat is a guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer. Uh, If you haven't heard of him, I would commend to you. um, He wrote a phenomenal church history book. It's a unique church history book. It's through the lens of spiritual formation. And so I was excited to get there and to sit at his feet, but, but the first session, he, he begins to open up his mouth, and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply moved, not because he's giving us kind of a panoramic view of church history, but because he's, he's pulling us into God's story in his own personal life. I don't have to get all the way into it, but, but I will say this. He had me kind of from hello, because a little over 30 years ago, it's 1991, Jerry Sitzer is in his car with his family, long story short short, they get hit hit head on by a drunk driver. Immediately. His mother dies, his wife dies, and his four-year-old daughter dies. Just like that, three generations of women in his life, gone. He writes of this in another book I would commend to you. It's a book called Grace Disguised. Here he is. Can't even wrap his mind around it. The wounds are fresh and raw. He's in the hospital, and look at what he says with me on the screen. He, he writes, in the hours that followed the, the accident, the initial shot gave way to an unspeakable agony. I love this phrasing. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo, cut off from family and friends, tormented by the loss, nauseous from the pain. After arriving at the hospital, I I paced the floor like a caged animal, only recently captured. I was so bewildered that I was unable to voice questions or, or think rationally. In a word, Jerry Sitzer is experiencing crisis. Now we hear that word all the time, don't we? Crisis, 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 crisis. But but what exactly is a crisis? Look with me on the screen because if you don't get this word, you'll you'll miss out on, on what God's going to teach us in Psalm 13 because this one word frames all of Psalm 13. Here it is. A crisis occurs when the events of life leave us with far more questions than we have answers. You know you're in a crisis when you have way more questions then you have answers. That's exactly where David is in Psalm 13. You don't need to spend a day in seminary 
to figure out that our text is riddled with question after question after question. I mean, shoot, just four times he goes, how long, how long, how long, how long, way more questions than answers. Ever been there? I mean, I'm reading this. And, and, and here I am just kind of marinating on this text in my study and, and just kind of sitting with it. And, and the first question I have, well, w- w- well, David, what crisis are you referring to? Because if you understand anything about David, I mean, you talk about a guy who went from crisis to crisis, a guy whose life was filled with drama and at the same time was called a man after God's own heart, parenthetically. The, the life of David kind of gives a death knell to prosperity theology. This whole idea that, that if I just have enough quiet times, if I just give enough money, I, I, I'll just kind of live the easy life, get the brand new Range Rover with the 26-inch rims. Rims, African-American colloquialism for hubcaps, but you know what I'm saying here. <laughs> and if for some reason I find myself in a crisis, that means God's mad at me. Well, David's life just totally dismantles that. Man after God's own heart, but crisis after crisis. I want to know, David, what crisis are you talking about? Are you, are you talking about the time, maybe, when you had to catch the first flight out of Jerusalem because of Ahithophel and your own son Absalom kind of betraying you? Is it that crisis? Or was it one of the many times when Saul just kind of tried to pin you to the wall by throwing a spear at you? Was it that crisis? Or was it one of the many times, here you are, from the time you were anointed as king till the time you sit on the throne, there's that 15-year period, and, and here you are hiding out in caves, feigning, feigning madness in, in places like Gath, going out to war yet again. Which crisis are you referring to? And we don't know. Not only that, but if you look in your Bibles, most Bibles kind of label this psalm and dedication to the congregation, which means Psalm 13 is originally written not to be preached from, but to be sung. It's a worship song on crisis. Hear me, any hit songwriter will tell you what makes a songwriter a hit is its unique ability to resonate with the human experience. Psalm 13 will always be at the top of God's Billboard 150. Because it resonates with us. All of us here have been through crisis. I'm thinking of a former colleague of mine sitting there in a meeting, and he comes in and tears. Him and his wife have just gone for what they thought was a routine checkup. She's about to give birth to a baby. And the doctor lets them know this child will be born with special needs and They immediately go across the street to a little park, sit down on the bench, hold each other, and just kind of out loud, just begin saying things to the effect of our life will never be the same. Crisis. I could tell you of five years I spent at St. St. Jude's Children's Hospital with my own son. It's one thing for me to go through something, but it's another thing to watch your five-year-old child suffer. Some of you college students understand this. You, you leave what you think is a stable home. You go off to university only to hear a little bit later about how mom and dad are getting divorced. Way more questions than answers crisis. Others of you, you've gotten the doctor's report. 
You thought it was just a routine physical and they're calling you back. Uh, your PSA levels are high or it looks like it could be cancer. Come on in for, for more tests. Crisis. Keep inhaling and exhaling. You will find yourself in situations where you have way more questions than answers. So what do we do? I mean, just look at our text. David just begins by asking, again, four times, how long... How long? How long? I mean, he, he almost sounds like a five-year-old from my generation on a road trip. Like, when are we going to get there? I say in my generation because now road trips are completely different. You can look at this stupid Google Maps thing, and it'll tell you exactly when you're going to get there. That's not how we rolled back in the 80s. <laughs> See, I think one of the things David is pointing to here, the problem with suffering isn't isn't the physical part, it's the psychological part. So I, I recently joined the Peloton cult. <laughs> and they delivered this thing to my house, man. I, I just remember they, they delivered the bike to my house. We, we put it in a room in our house where, you know, th there's this TV. And, and it's my first ride. And so I just kind of get on there and decide to hit something called interval training. Have no idea what interval training is. And... <laughs> I decide what I'm going to do is I'm going to mute the instructor, turn on the television, because on the Peloton thing, it'll tell you how fast you should be going on kind of the bottom left hand and kind of what your resistance should be on the, on the bottom right. And so interval training, as I would find out, is um, short, quick bursts of speed. But I've got the instructor muted so I can see how fast I can be going. Uh, all of a sudden, it says 90 to 100 miles an hour, but because it's muted, I don't know how long. So all of a sudden, 90 to 100 miles an hour, go, 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 but, but I don't know how long, and it's kind of messing with my mind. So all of a sudden, I said, no, 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 I got to hear what Sister Girl's saying here. <laughs> so I unmute her, mute the television, and then I hear things like, for the next 30 seconds, we're going to go 90 miles an hour, totally change the game, <laughs> because I knew how long. Wouldn't it be great if God were to come to you and just say, hey, man, the next six, six months are going to be brutal. But it's only six months. It's a whole lot better than not knowing. Again, the problem with suffering isn't so much the suffering. It's the psychological fatigue of just not knowing. David goes on and he says, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? This is what theologians call an anthropomorphism. It is, it is adding human attributes to God in order to describe him because John 4, Jesus says God is spirit. Yeah. The idea of face in the Bible is presence. So when David says, how long will you hide your face from me? He's saying, I feel abandoned. Right. Ever been there? Oh, y'all so spiritual here in Wilmington. <laughs> Ever gone through something and it just felt like God was nowhere to be found? Then he says, 
Consider and answer me. Again, the original language of the, of the text is in Hebrew. Uh, those words consider and answer is what we would call imperatives. The idea of an imperative, it's simply a demand. And whenever you make a demand, there's a sense of urgency. I think in its emotional context, David is saying to God this way, consider me, answer me. I need you to speak into this now. And then he says, light up my eyes. You know, most scholars will tell you This is a veiled reference to what we would today call depression. King David, struggling with depression. I thought mental health was merely a 21st century American phenomenon. Please don't judge me when I say this. For the longest time, I used to hear people say, I'm depressed. Please don't judge me. And my my initial reflex reaction was, oh, they're weak. And then it happened to me. Several years ago, man, there was just, just one thing after another after. Here's what I hate about problems. Problems never come to your house by themselves. They, they bring their aunties, their uncles, Pookie and them. I mean, just have a family reunion right there. And I, and I remember after a couple weeks of this, I, I'll never forget sitting on our little stoop there in our home in California. It's 11 o'clock in the morning and just going, why am I so tired? And the fatigue just kind of kicked in. After a couple of days, I'm, I'm on Google, and I've diagnosed myself with terminal cancer. And <laughs> my sister, who's a medical doctor, says, just make an appointment. And so I'm, I'm, I'm fatigued during the day. I can't wait to get in the bed at night. I get in the bed, but my heart starts racing. I then make an appointment with the doctor, and the doctor starts asking me questions about what's going on in my life. And I'm just like, I got this going on, that going on, that going on. And I just remember clicking off about seven things and just thinking to myself, just hearing myself talk out loud, wow, you've got a lot. That ever happened to you? And he diagnoses me with depression and anxiety. I identify with David when he says, light up my eyes. How do we get through a crisis Number one, it's my longest point. What David is modeling for us is he's bringing his feelings to God. This ain't no safe King James Version. Dot every theological I, cross every theological T, prim and proper kind of prayer. There is a rawness to it. It's riddled. It's deeply emotive. I'm trying to figure out when in church history did we say a mark of the spiritually mature is to be emotionless. There is rawness here. 
I think the reason why this is so jarring for me is because um, I grew up in a house where mama and them didn't, didn't really care about your feelings. Now, I know there's a cultural disconnect. I look at some of my white brothers and sisters, man, and y'all engage your two-year-old's feelings as to why they don't want to tie their shoes. And man, I can learn a lot from you. But that ain't how I grew up. Mama didn't tell me, tie your shoes and then step back and say, now, how do you feel about that? So mama would say something, man, I wouldn't like it. I'd go to my, my, my room on way on the other side of the house, stand in the corner of my room, go, I hate her, 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 I hate her. Her supernatural hearing would kick in on the other side. She would shout, what did you say? I would lie, oh, nothing, mom. And so what I'm trying to tell you is my parental grid growing up is just kind of stuff it, grin and bear it, don't emote. And then what do I do? I get saved. And I take that mentality to God. The only problem is God's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, which means he knows how we feel, whether or not we say it. Yes, sir. I want to show you something on the screen. It's, it's something I've been utilizing. You can put up the communication pyramid. It's popularized by a, um, a um, PhD who got his PhD from the University of North Carolina. I'm just going to leave that alone. Um, <laughs> it's called the communication pyramid. Basically what it says is this is a wonderful tool to, that will allow you to uh, gauge the authenticity of your friendships, the health of your marriages, basically five levels of communication. Uh, starting at the very top, um, those are the most superficial levels, and as we go down to the bottom, those are the deeper, deepest levels. Uh, at the top is, is cliche. Um, good morning, good morning, how are you? It's kind of what we do down south. We're just so nice, right? <laughs> levels two and level three are where most guys hang out. It's sports center talk. Level two is facts. Like, who's the greatest of all time? Of course, it's Jordan. I mean, LeBron ain't even in the top five. So anyways, but it's just everybody knows that. Everybody knows that, right? How many points did Steph Curry have the other night? We, we just kind of, those are facts. Level three is, is opinion. It's expressing what we think. But levels four and five are the deepest levels of communication. Level four is emotive. It's, it's expressing how I feel. Level five is transparency. It's expressing who you are. Have you ever read David in the Psalms and he says stuff like um, what he says in Psalm 55, Lord, send my enemies to hell. And you're like, whoa, whoa, it's not good theology there. <laughs> the problem is we come to the Psalms in level two, but David is writing from level four. He, he's expressing how he feels. By the way, this is the problem with ethnic unity. Something happens, and maybe the black community is lamenting. And our white brothers and sisters just not trying to be malicious. We can just tend to jump in there with level. Well, hold on, we don't know all the facts. And we miss each other. This is what the Bible gets at when it says, grieve with those who grieve. Yes, there's a place for facts, but let's meet each other emotively first. 
Psalm 13 is level four communication. David ain't trying to dot all the theological I's and cross all the theological T's. He's saying, God, this is how I feel. Let me ask you, how's your prayer life? Are you hanging out with God at level two? Are you peppering him with information? I can just imagine now God going, hey, Holy Spirit, did you know Jack needs new tires? (laughs) Or do you ever get to level four? How do I get through a crisis? I bring my feelings. Number two, how do I get through a crisis? We get through a crisis by remembering the facts about God. I, I love it. Verse, verse four, here's David. He's, excuse me, verse five, the first four verses, he's been emoting how long, light up my eyes, consider and answer me. I feel abandoned by you. And, and, and praise God, the psalm doesn't end after verse four because you're almost like, is David losing it here? But then verse five, but, but, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. It's almost like he has an epiphany, emoting, 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 hear me, and nothing in the text suggests his, his situation has changed. Exactly right. Exactly. He, he stops and he marinates on the truth of who God is. And that's why I got to go back to Jerry Sitzer. Jerry Sitzer, this guy who lost three generations of women just like that, hit by a drunk driver. He sits and he's telling us this. And he says, here I am, and I got to tell you, he's in his 70s now. He says, the most sacred hour of my life was the ambulance ride from the crash site to the hospital. He he says, months before, I, I can't tell you why, I just started memorizing Psalm 139, this incredible psalm on the beauty and the majesty and the sovereignty of God, rich with theological truths. Where shall I go from your spirit? And here I am in the ambulance ride, and I'm marinating on, on God's care for me, God's omnipresence for me. My situation hasn't changed. I guess what I'm trying to say is, when going through a crisis, remember this, your feelings make wonderful passengers, horrible drivers. Your feelings are like a two-year-old. They need to be in the car. We we don't put the two-year-old in the trunk. Neither do we put them behind the wheel. We strap them in. We engage with them. We interact with them. But never forget, when going through tough times, always let what you know about God trump how you may feel about God. David says, I'm in a crisis. Here's how I feel. But I'm making a decision. I'm going to trust, here it is, on the steadfast love of God. We've got to fly. Steadfast love, Hebrew word has said, most important word in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It is used 250 times in the Old Testament. 127 of those times, just over half of its usages are found in the book of Psalms. 
what is hesed. If we don't know what hesed is, we can't rightly divide the word of God here. But we've got a problem because hesed in general is God's character and how he relates to us, his people. And this is the problem. You can't really define that. So it's the most important word. We can't, I mean, it, trying to define has said, it's like, it's like when I went to Cape Town, South Africa for the first time, I, I then come back and my wife who didn't go with me, she's asking me, well, how was it? I'm like, unbelievable. Is that it? Like, unpack that for me. I, I'm struggling. There's tabletop mountain. There's the coming together of the Indian and Atlantic Ocean. I'm, I'm struggling to put into words. That's has said. Trying to, de- de- to define his said is like, it's like me trying to define what I felt the first time I heard John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. If you haven't heard A Love Supreme, you haven't heard music. <laughs> like, like when Jesus comes back he's, he, to take us home, he's going to stop by Tower Records. Okay, that was so 1990s. He's, he, he's going to take that back with us, A Love Supreme. It's, it's, it's the album John Coltrane records after he gets saved. He calls it his offering to God. You're welcome. I just blessed you. Download it now. <laughs> How do you describe that? I mean, trying to define his set is like, trying to make sense of Pastor J.D. Greer's love for Nicolas Cage. Like, how, how do you do that? So let me, let me give it a shot. If you get nothing else I say, get this. What is his said? Here's the best way I've heard it defined. It's from Michael Card in his wonderful book, Inexpressible. Here's his said. When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. What is this said? When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me just give you a couple examples of this. Um, it's the book of Exodus Here's God. He leads the nation of Israel out of, out of Egypt. He opens up the Red Sea. And what do these jokers do? They construct a golden calf. And they start worshiping this false God. And God comes to Moses and says, man, I'm ticked off. We're going to do a massive reset. I know you're in your 80s, but I'm going to start over with you. You and Zippor are going to have another kid. And I got a good track record of this. Ask Abraham. They kind of started over, 90s or whatever. We can do this. And Moses, in a Christ-like way, intercedes and says, no, God, you got to keep your promise here. We, we can't do that. Show me your glory. And what does God say? Okay, these people have no right to expect anything from me, but I want to give them everything. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, God passes by Moses. And what does he say of himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in. Here it is. Steadfast love has said and faithfulness keeping. Here it is again. Steadfast love has said for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Twice he says, has said, has said, they have no right to expect anything from me, but I'm going 
to give them everything. Or, or take, take, God comes to, to Hosea and he says, man, my people are committing spiritual adultery on me. They are, his words, whoring after other gods. Um, uh, they have no right to expect anything from me, but I want to use you as my divine show and tell. I know you just graduated from seminary, um, uh, but I want you to marry this prostitute. And when she cheats on you, chapter three, go and get her because that's exactly what I do with my people every day when they cheat on me. I go and get them. In other words, my people have no right to expect anything from me, but I'm going to give them everything. It's the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. It's riddled all over the place. He, he takes the money. He heads off to a foreign country, which in Greek can be translated Vegas. He goes to Vegas. He spends the money. He cashes out. He, he, he's broke in an irony of ironies. He's, he's in a pig pen, this Jewish kid. He says, I'll go back home, but I can't go back as a son. I'll go back as a hired servant, thinking I can pay off my debt to my father. And what does the dad do? He runs and he hugs him. And the son launches in, dad, I'm a hired servant here. Nonsense. You're my son. Kill the fatted calf. Get a robe. Put a ring on his finger. Call the DJ. Cupid shuffle. We're throwing a party. You have no right to expect anything from me, but I'm going to give you everything. And friends, the penultimate example of that is the cross. Just this week, all of us hoard after our own idols, our own golden calves. We worship idols of success and status and money. We lied, we gossiped, we betrayed. And yet morning by morning, new mercies we see. We are here not because of the letters behind your name, not because of your good choices. We are here because of the said of God. So what does David say? In the middle of the crisis, he goes, man, I shouldn't even be here. My dad didn't even introduce me as a candidate to Samuel when he rolled through. I was out tending sheep. And now I'm sitting on the throne. I'm here because of the hesed of God. So God, my focal point in the crisis ain't going to be the situation. It's going to be your hesed. And as we close, we bring our feelings to God, we bring our facts about God, but we bring our faith to God. Now, notice how David ends. I will sing, I will rejoice. <laughs> His situation hasn't changed. So, so, so Brian, what, what, what are you saying here? I gotta force myself to sing. I gotta force myself to rejoice. You, you, you musicians have heard of the phrase. There's something called sympathetic resonation. Long story short, sympathetic resonation pretty much means this. If you take a C tuning fork, musicians tell us, and you hold it next to a guitar where one of the strings have been tuned to C, in the presence of the C tuning fork, that string will automatically start to vibrate. Do I have to will myself to sing? I'm in a crisis. Will myself to church. Will myself to rejoice. No, no, no. David is saying, when your heart's been marinating on the hesed of God, the natural response is your vocal cords vibrate. 
That's why I always have a problem with Christians who say worship wasn't that good today. As if worship depends on musicianship. The worship experience has nothing to do with the quality of the vocals or the quality of playing. It is a reflection of where your heart is at. When my heart is sitting in the said of God and I realize, we used to sing in the black church, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah, thank God for blessing me when I think, I thank. So that, hear it. When I sing and rejoice, even in the midst of a crisis, those become defiant acts of rebellion. When you sing and rejoice in in the middle of a crisis, it is you shaking your fist at the gates of hell and saying circumstances and situations and doctor reports will not steal my joy. Put this image up as we close. You're looking at the time life photo of the year for 1996. The woman you see, the black woman, is a woman by the name of Keisha Thomas. This is Ann Arbor, Michigan. 1996, it's a white supremacy rally. In the middle of the rally, Keisha Thomas is there because her and other African-American friends are there to protest the rally. But in the middle of the rally, there's a guy who's a part of the KKK, Nazi tattoos, Confederate flag emblazoned on his shirt, who wanders off by accident to where the black protesters are. Black protesters start screaming and hollering at this guy and they knock him down and they're about to go to work on him. He's helpless. He's vulnerable. Surely he'll go to the hospital. Out of the blue comes the most unlikely help. A black woman named Keisha Thomas. She's covering him. Does he deserve this? No. He has no right to expect anything. But she's giving him everything. You're looking at a picture of his said. I don't like that picture. As a black man in my flesh, I'm like, get off of him. Let him give what he deserves. But when I put it in the lens of the gospel, I realize I'm not Keisha. I'm him. Every day I rebel against God. Every day I sin against him. I deserve an eternity in hell. But on the cross, Christ became the divine Keisha Thomas. He covers me.
He protects me. That's enough to get me through a crisis, friends. Let me just say this. Do you think this guy who harbored racist attitudes after Keisha Thomas covered him, do you think those attitudes didn't shift? Do you think they didn't change a little bit? That's what has said does. It changes us. Friends, I don't care what it is you go through. I can't guarantee you it's, can't guarantee you'll make it out. That you'll be miraculously healed. We, we pray that. One of my best friends just two weeks ago got diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Horrible way to die. I called him to encourage him, but he ended up encouraging me. He says, Brian, don't, don't worry about me. We're praying that God will heal. But my faith is strong, and my faith ain't in the outcomes. God has saved me. So, Father, I bless your people. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have way more mercy than we have mess. In this life, we will have trouble. But if you can raise a dead Jesus, you can cure our cancer. You can bring back the wayward child. There's nothing that you can't do. And we do pray that, Lord God. You are a miracle worker, and we do pray that you step in. But in, in, in the meantime, in between time, we sing, we rejoice, because our hope is not in the outcome. Our hope is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your said. We have no right to expect anything. But because of Jesus, you have given us everything. And we receive that today in Jesus' name. Amen.